Whether you're looking to lose, gain, or maintain your current weight, it seems like weight is something that is always on our minds. Many people may even dream of seeing a particular number on their scales. But when it comes to our health, just how important is that number? Before we dive into how to interpret weight, let's define an important term that provides a standard for how we classify body weight. BMI, which stands for Body Mass Index, is often used by physicians and RDs to classify our weight based on our height. It's a simple and inexpensive method for determining weight-related disease risk. There are lots of online resources that will calculate BMI for you based on the information you provide, but if you'd like to determine your own BMI, here's the formula. You may want to pause the video and write this down. If you'd like, you can calculate your BMI now or come back to it once you complete the lecture. Your BMI is your weight in pounds multiplied by 703 divided by your height in inches squared. Whether you have your answer now or come back to this later, here's how to interpret it. A BMI less than 18 is considered underweight. A BMI between 19 and 24 is considered normal weight. A BMI between 25 and 29 is considered overweight. And a BMI over 30 is considered obese. Here's the thing though, this system isn't perfect and there are a few reasons why. First off, it doesn't distinguish between fat and muscle. This means it may actually consider people with more muscle mass, like serious athletes, as overweight or obese, even though they're actually very lean. As you can imagine, this can be pretty confusing. It also doesn't distinguish between how fat may be distributed throughout the body. This is valuable information since people who carry the majority of their weight around their bellies are at an increased risk for chronic disease compared to individuals who carry most of their weight around their hips. Lastly, some people may naturally have either a smaller or larger frame, and BMI doesn't account for that either. There are other methods that are better able to distinguish between lean body mass and fat mass, but they're mostly used in clinical settings and can be expensive. Even though it's not perfect, the BMI formula is a tool that you can easily share with your clients so that they get a general sense of whether or not their weight may put them at risk for disease. Still, BMI and weight may not actually matter as much as you think. What matters more is, one, the amount of fat you have stored, and two, where in the body it is stored. Excess body fat, especially around the waist, is a health concern. In simple terms, excess body fat occurs when energy intake in the form of food is higher than energy expended through things like physical activity. But in reality, this process may be more complicated than that. In fact, there's extensive research showing that factors having nothing to do with food intake can affect your weight and the amount of fat that you store. Stress, for example, is especially important when it comes to your weight. The more stressed you are, the more likely you are to choose energy-dense foods that are high in sugar and fat. Not only do you make poorer food choices, but you also become more effective at storing the fat. Over time, this combination can lead to significant weight gain. To avoid this, finding a proper outlet to relieve stress is really important. Here are just a few other examples of these factors that can affect weight. Activity level, environment, relationships, sleep patterns, genes, and medications. As you can see, weight is much more complicated than a number on a scale. 
rather than trying to get caught up in losing weight, if you're concerned about your health, one of the best things you can do is increase your lean body mass. You've probably heard before that muscle weighs more than fat. Well, this isn't really true, but muscle certainly is more dense than fat, so it takes up less volume per pound. This can explain why some people may not lose weight when they start working out, but they look noticeably more toned. They are essentially reducing their body fat and building their muscle, which may not actually translate into weight loss, but even if someone's weight doesn't change in this scenario, their health and energy levels are likely to improve. Although we definitely need some fat to keep us healthy, excess body fat is linked to different chronic disease states like cancer, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. So although weight and BMI aren't everything, they may help provide a clue as to who may be at risk. Obesity is becoming a global epidemic, and helping people to address both the dietary and non-dietary factors that can affect their weight will help to stop this trend from continuing. For some people, even a modest amount of weight loss can greatly improve their health and reduce disease risk. Sadly, weight is a topic often surrounded by shame, guilt, and feelings of low self-esteem. It can be difficult to move beyond this because of pressure by society to look a certain way or weigh a certain amount from even a young age. But there is so much more that goes into your well-being than simply your weight. Since this can be a delicate topic for most people, approach it gently and offer non-judgmental support, not only when working with your future clients, but within your own life as well. Helping clients to navigate the non-dietary parts of their lives through primary food can have tremendous effects on their body weight and overall health. No diets necessary. As always, consider the big picture. This is about improving your long-term health. Keep in mind that in addition to a healthy diet, having healthy relationships, managing stress properly, and adding physical activity to your routine helps support the weight that is best for you. 10 steps to achieve your ideal weight. Weight is often a concern for many and in the United States alone, an estimated two-thirds of the population is considered overweight or obese, putting health at risk because this issue is spreading throughout the globe. It is important that health coaches know ways to help reduce the prevalence and offer support to individuals as they develop healthy habits. Health coaches are bound to encounter all sorts of scenarios when it comes to body weight. Be mindful that not all individuals want to lose weight. Some may be looking to gain weight, shift their weight, reducing fat and gaining muscles, or simply maintain their current status. What exactly is an ideal weight? There are two ways to consider an ideal weight. One is more technical and the other is more intuitive. The technical formula for determining ideal weight is the Hamwe equation. Women, 100 pounds plus 5 pounds for each inch above 5 feet and 5 pounds for each inch above 5 feet. For the men, 106 pounds plus 6 pounds for each inch above 5 feet and less 6 pounds for each inch above 5 feet. Typically being within 10% of this number is considered acceptable, allowing for different body frames. Example, according to Hamway method, the ideal weight for women 
who is 4'10 is 90 pounds and the ideal weight for men who is 5'10 is 166 pounds. From a more intuitive standpoint, ideal weight is the weight one feels best at and can safety maintain. This allows people to let how they feel be there versus relying on the number of the scale. An intuitive approach to ideal weight looks at the big picture, how both primary and secondary food affects the body. This approach acknowledges that weight is only a small piece of wellness puzzle. Placing too much emphasizing on body weight alone can cause areas of primary food to suffer. It often ends up bark firing and creating a stressful relationship with foods and on a physical activity or even straining relationships with loved ones. Rather than getting caught up in the number of the scale, focus on balancing your primary food and making food secondary food decisions that you enjoy to naturally support a healthy weight. This is a topic that seems to always be on the people's minds and it's certainly something you can expect clients to discuss. So make sure you're ready, review the tips for the weight loss and weight gain related to both primary and secondary food on the following pages. No matter the goal, don't forget to consider the big picture and put more emphasis on how you or your clients feel rather than your weight. Number one, switch up your beverages. Weight loss. A study shows that simply adding more water to your, to your diet may contribute to your weight loss over time as it as an increase in water intake may reduce energy intake. Replacing sugar, sweat, sweetening, or high-calorie beverages with water especially useful in supporting a healthy weight as these items not only a source of empty calories but individuals who consume soft drinks may actually eat more calories during the day. Weight gain. If you're looking to add more calories to your diet, smoothies packed with whole foods are a great option. Smoothies can help add calories between meals. Try using nut butters, flax seeds, chia seeds, or avocados for some extra goodies. Number two, focus on whole nutrient-dense food. For weight loss, a well-rounded diet based on whole foods can naturally help support a healthy weight. Things like healthy fats, complex carbohydrates, and lean protein provide adequate nutrition while also contributing to safety. The, the fullness factor. Fiber from plants is especially useful in supporting healthy weight. It keeps you fuller for longer, meaning you're less likely to reach snack shortly after meals and supports your gut health, which may have larger implication when it comes to weight. Weight gain. To ensure sure you're getting enough calories, you may find it easier to eat several small meals that include whole nutrient-dense food rather than trying to consume larger meals, snacks like nuts and seeds, dried fruits without added sugar, and cheese help 
art galleries include high quality fat sources such as olive and coconut oils and salmon during meals. Number three, limit exposure to additives. Weight loss, some compounds you're likely to encounter in your daily life, daily environment may contribute to weight gain by affecting the body's ability to metabolize fat. These chemicals may also be referred to as endocrine disruptors. Some examples include BPA, which is bi bispenol A, a compound found in many plastics and cans, perfluoroctanoic acid, a nasty coating used on pans, pesticides, and phthalates, chemical found in plastics. Weight gain. If you're looking to weight gain, you should still try to avoid this substance, which is BPA, since they have negative implication on your health and may, may make weight regulation more difficult after your, you've searched, you've researched your ideal weight. Look instead for healthy ways to increase calories and add weight naturally throughout balanced meals. Manage stress. Weight loss. Stress may cause weight and increase in two ways. First, the body increases production of stress hormones. When these hormones are triggered, the body production of stress, the body goes into fat storage mode and becomes more effective at storing fat. The second way is, the second way is emotional stress tend to cause people to seek comfort, often in the form of food. In fact, the more stressed you are, the more you may be drawn to fatty, sugary foods. So not only you are more drawn to high-calorie foods when stressed, but your body is also more efficient at turning them into fat. Weight gain. Many find that stress causes a diseased appetite. This may lead some to actually eat less during times of stress, thus causing weight loss. If, if you find yourself cutting back or avoiding food when, you're, when you have a lot of going on, make plans to increase your intake to help increase your appetite during these times. Try to eat regular meals with others and include interesting spices and flavors in your cooking. Ginger and cayenne are examples of spices that may help stimulate the appetite. Ways to reduce stress are yoga, exercise, meditation, music, deep breathing, and books. Number five, eat mindfully. Weight loss. When eating, try to slow down and be present. Take a moment to gratefully for the food and try to chew each bite thoroughly. By trying to eat and chew mindfully, you may find you are satisfied by as much a smaller portion than when you are rushed and don't take time to consider the meals. Weight gain. It is important to recognize that each bite of your meal is nourishing you. Picture the food entering your body and making you stronger. Taking extra time for eating your meals can also help support good digestion and nutrient absorption. Number six, include breakfast. Weight loss, 
One thing that many people who have been successfully at losing weight and keeping it off have in common is that they eat a wholesome breakfast every morning. A thoughtful breakfast can help keep you full, full during your morning and prevent you from bringing later in the day due to hunger. Weight gain. If you're looking to add more calories to your diet, breakfast is an excellent opportunity to do this. Choose a well-rounded breakfast that offers protein, complex, carbohydrates, and lean fat sources. 7. Don't skip meals. Weight loss. If you're trying to lose weight, make sure you're not getting too hungry between meals. When, it's, when this happens, you are more likely to bring on the foods you're trying to limit. Not only you are more inclined to make an impulsive food decision, but you may end up eating far far more than you normally would. Weight gain. To gain weight, you may want it smaller. Balance meal and include more snacks to add calories. Skipping meals may make putting on weight more difficult. A. Cook food at home. Weight loss. Not only are portion sizes larger at restaurants, which lead people to eat more, they're also typically higher in fat, salt, and sugar. Eating out can be a fun treat, but if you're getting the majority of your food from restaurants, you may be consuming more calories than you realize. Experiment with cooking at home and explore a variety of whole foods and cooking techniques. Weight gain. Cooking at home gives you more control over the ingredients being used which help ensures that you're not only getting enough calories but also getting a high quality meals prepared with love that includes all the things you want and avoids all the things you don't number nine prioritizing sleep weight loss is keeping out on sleep can cause disruption in your circadian rhythm which can increase inflammation in the body and create conditions conductive to weight gain. Sleep deprivation also causes your body to produce more ghrelin, the hormone that signals you to eat. More adults need 7 to 9 hours sleep per night. Weight gain. Sleep is your body's time to rest and repair, allowing it to be more effective during the day Although you may want add calories throughout the day, try not to eat at least 2 to 3 hours before bed as this may affect your sleep quality. 10. Exercise your body. Weight loss. Working out helps relieve stress, burn calories, and give your metabolism a boost if, even when you're not working out. Make sure to have some protein following your workout to help support muscle repair. Weight gain. Resistant exercise and strength training can help build muscle. Remember to eat enough calories to support the extra activity while still allowing weight gain. You may also want to consider a protein-rich snack or meal following workout to help support muscle repair. Some people, most people will come to you about weight loss issues, but some will come for weight gain issues. How many of you feel here, for example, want to figure out how to gain weight? OK. 
Okay, part of what I went through when I uh, switched over my way of eating was that I weighed about 155 pounds and that kind of light weightedness just didn't give me the strength to be able to do battle in the world out there. I was fine living, you know, with the trees, they didn't bother me, but I could not figure out how to gain weight. And uh, so I want to take a few minutes just to talk about that. The first thing we always look at is primary food. How to create balance in terms of primary food. Sometimes people need uh, also digestive enzymes. They're just not digesting their food. It goes through them. You know those people who say, Oh, I can just eat anything and I don't put on a pound. Sometimes it's because they're not absorbing the food. So aids for digestion are helpful. Fatty foods. I kind of myself went on uh, just, I noticed I craved nut butters. And uh, not having animal sources of protein, I learned that peanut butter has much more protein than any other nut butter because it's not actually a nut, it's a bean. Peanuts are actually from the bean legume family. So it, there's a book called The Peanut Butter Diet. And uh, it's, I actually recommend it for people who are trying to be vegan but put on weight. So just in general, increasing fats and oils, butter, things like that. Exercise is really important as part of the primary food. And at the end of the day, for a lot of people, eating animal food, which is a more assimilatable form of protein and fats, is helpful for gaining weight. It's very important for people also to have breakfast every day, just to remember to eat, have three meals a day, and three snacks a day. And I also recommend for those people late night eating, because you pack in one more meal as uh, part of that process. Most people don't have this problem about how to gain weight. And at the end of the day, I often say to people, weight is a bit like height. You know, if you're six foot two, you're never gonna be five foot 10. And some people have different body types, and that's great, we're all different. But a lot of people who are thin are never going to be full body weight. And a lot of people who are heavy are never going to be uh, skinny. And they're still beautiful people. And being able to come to terms with that and using that height as an example is helpful for people because I think the way the media portrays it is, yeah, you can change your body type overnight. You know, five-day, ten-day diet, and you're all fine. Within the weight loss diets, there's one that uh, I read uh, consumer reports, you know, which car to buy, which air conditioner, which television, they do all the testing and research and um, so I was just reading that the one that they, after studying all the different ways of eating, they came across was this one called Volumetrics, which is not very well known. 
but uh, which I want to talk about now. It's based on the idea that people like to eat. When they eat, they don't really know how many calories are in the food. They just like to have a large volume of food. The more, the better. Given the choice between eating more food or less food, almost everyone will choose being able to eat more food. So volumetrics is not based on any kind of deprivation. On the contrary, it's based on eat whatever you want, but be sure you understand the calorie density of the foods that you're eating. It was developed by someone called Barbara Rolls, who is a professor of nutrition and director of the Laboratory for the Study of Human Ingestive Behavior at Penn State University. After writing over 200 research articles, she came to the conclusion that people feel full because of the volume of food they eat, not because of the calories or carbs or fats or proteins. And so the trick is to fill up with foods that are not full of calories and basically eat more, weigh less. In this segment, we're going to cover why weight loss, some core principles that you can apply to every disease beyond just weight loss, my unique Be Good For You approach, some lessons I've learned along the way, and some specific factors affecting weight loss that you can use right away. So why weight loss? Well, it's a huge problem. Over 70% of adults are obese and over 37% of adults, or sorry, over 70% are overweight and over 37% are obese. And that number continues to climb. And at the current rate, nearly half of Americans will be obese by the year 2030. We are rapidly going still in the wrong direction. Childhood obesity is one of the most serious public health challenges of the 21st century. And childhood obesity has tripled in the last generation. The prevalence of adult obesity has quadrupled since the 80s. But it's not just an American problem. This is a global problem. 2.1 billion people of the 7 billion people on this planet are overweight. And that is increasing as well. That rate has doubled globally in the last 30 years. So if we look at currently, there's 500 million obese adults and that's expected to double to 1 billion by the year 2030. That's not just overweight, that's obese. Obesity increases the risk of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, high blood pressure, fatty liver, gallbladder disease, sleep apnea, respiratory problems, osteoarthritis, infertility, depression, and so much more. Cancers associated with being overweight include breast, ovarian, endometrial, esophageal, renal or kidney cancer, pancreatic, colorectal, thyroid, gallbladder, leukemias, multiple myeloma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and malignant melanoma. This is a serious issue. Chronic complications of weight kill 3.4 million adults annually. And obesity has now edged out tobacco as our number one killer. 
Excess weight shortens your life. Just being overweight can shave off three years. And being obese can be anywhere between six and 14 years. And even those last 20 years that you're here, you're not healthy. You're going to be fraught with all of those complications that I just mentioned. So people are literally dying for our help. So why weight loss? Well, it's a huge problem affecting the majority of people. It has significant detrimental health consequences. It's 100% preventable and curable. And people are actively looking for a solution. I do a little video or an article on health benefits of broccoli. Nobody cares. I tell them how they can lose weight and how they can get rid of their belly fat. Those are the emails they open. Those are the videos they watch. They are looking for a solution. So they are looking for you. And you get tangible, measurable, visible results. It's great to cure cancer, but you don't know until you die of something else that you didn't actually get cancer. You didn't know that you prevented it. So it's kind of nice to have some feedback along the way that you're going in the right direction. And doctors have primarily relinquished their domain over this to others. You know, go to Weight Watchers, go to the gym, go lose weight. And there's a huge need for a sustainable bio-individual solution. And it's a gateway issue to other areas of transformation of their life. This has been huge for me. I wanted to talk to patients, clients, about other things, like specific things. And they wanted to talk about weight loss. So I'm like, fine, we'll talk about weight loss. And in the meantime, I'll help you be healthy in other ways. So the core principles of transformative weight loss happen to be the same core principles to transform from dis-ease to ease. And this is the missing link for most people. If most people knew what I'm about to share, we would not have this issue. And this is where health coaches really shine. This is the key to successful bio-individual sustainable weight loss. And not everyone is ready to hear what I'm about to share, but you are. First principle, your body is the miracle that can heal itself if given half a chance. If I break my bone, I can go to the doctor, and as doctors, we can line it up and make sure that it's aligned but the, and give it half a chance. But the body is the miracle that forms that bony callus and actually does the healing. If you cut your finger... If it's really a big gap, okay, as a doctor, I can put the sutures in to bring it close together and give it half a chance. But it's actually your body that's the miracle that heals itself if given half a chance. And never was this more poignant than in my dad. Summer of 2016 suffered a massive stroke, was told he could not survive. The brain scan that they showed me showed it was too massive. There was nothing that they could do. And they were correct. There's nothing that they can do. Now, fortunately, I wasn't just a doctor, but I'm also a health coach. And I knew this core principle, like to the core of my being, that the body is the miracle that can heal itself if given half a chance. And I gave it every chance. I did everything I could possibly think of. Everything, prayer, meditation, visualization, nutrition, eating for energy, 
getting some beet juice in there, open up those vessels, focusing on the little things that could work, the little sensation that could work, everything. And I've documented that story elsewhere. 35 days later, he walked on, on, out on his own two feet, the miracle man. And he just celebrated his 84th birthday this past February. I didn't do that. His body did that. As a coach, I no more did that than as the doctors couldn't do that. It's his body. And just as a little aside, fortunately, at the beginning, he didn't know, he did, I didn't know, he didn't know who I was. But I knew he hates doctors. <laughs> and I went there, he could barely open his eyes, and they said he wouldn't recognize us, he wouldn't know us. And I leaned over and I said, we're going to get you out of here. And he said, what do I have to do? And I'm like, game on. Now, I think he thought he could walk. I don't think he knew he couldn't walk or get up or sit up or anything. I don't know. He couldn't even swallow. I don't think he knew that. But he knew he wanted to get out of there. And then game on. So he was on board. If you have someone who doesn't want to do it, there's nothing you could do. So the next core principle to realize is your body has an intelligence that allows it to grow. A baby becomes a child, becomes an adult. We don't have to tell it to do that. My heart beats. My lungs breathe. If I want to raise my hand, I can. It just does this stuff. It's amazing. And your body is a cellular community. These cells form your tissues form your organs, form your body. And these cells talk to each other. They communicate what they need. And you are consciousness. And your cells are consciousness too. And your cells are getting what they need through you. And you literally are what you eat. And I don't just mean food. Every one of your hundred trillion cells is made up of the building blocks that you feed it through the food you eat, the drinks you drink, the air you breathe, and even the thoughts you think. Where do you think the fat and the membrane of your cells comes from? The food you eat. Where do you think the protein and the fat that form your hormones that allow your body to function and how you feel comes from? From the food you eat. So yes, why do we keep having where the, the doctors say, and I was frustrated too, there's nothing more we can do? Because they can't. It's your body that's the miracle that can heal itself. As a radiologist, I literally got to see inside people's bodies on a daily basis. If we look at these ultrasounds of the liver, both of these women have the livers they have through the choices that they've made. It's not their fault because they probably didn't know. But their choices absolutely do matter. If we look at the carotids, that's the vessel in the neck that supplies blood flow to the brain. That first one is normal, clear flowing path straight through. Number two has some plaque built up, narrowing that. And number three, there's just a whisper getting through. And the problem is some of that plaque can fly off, cause a stroke, or occlude and cause a stroke, or they can die. These people have the vessels that they do largely through the choices that they've made. 
they don't know that it's not their fault but that's where we can come in to help guide them to what choices might give them the result they're looking for so that first vessel is normal that's in the oldest patient just because you're getting older does not mean you have to deteriorate and in fact i'm sure my fellow radiologists in the crowd would agree sometimes the best vessels are in the 90 year olds and up why because the ones with the crummy vessels have all died off it's true all the time we saw that so you have power in your choices use it people all the time were giving me the power i think they think they can do whatever they want to their body and then if they get sick they'll just go to the doctor and the doctor will fix them i think that's why i became a doctor i wanted to fix people it doesn't work that way you have the building blocks you have the power that's my job now is to give the power right back to them and that's your job too so health is a choice healthy weight loss is a choice and the only person who can really save you is you no one can eat for you no one can feel for you think for you do your push-ups for you it's up to you so the question is which choices give your body that half a chance? That's where bioindividuality comes in because there's more than one right answer. That's why I always say be good for you. So the key is to tune in and listen to your body. A shortcut to that? I'll show you in a moment. But that's where IIN health coaches come in. Helping people determine what choices make your body sing and what choices make your body sick. Because that takes some work. That's the work. So your intelligent cells are eavesdropping on you all the time. Fearful stress cells behave differently than healthy, happy cells. Truly feeling healthy and happy can have cells behave in kind. Not just saying you're happy and being miserable, but truly feeling that way. So come from love, not fear. Come from self-love, not self-loathing, which is so common with weight loss. And love yourself enough to live a healthy lifestyle. When my dad was in his 70s, late 70s, he bought a brand new red Corvette. And they're low to the ground, right? Really low. And he got in and there, out of there, no problem. And he said, suddenly all my aches and pains are gone. It's the best medicine. Why? Because he felt young and vital and alive and his cells are eavesdropping. And it's like, all right, you want to be 20? All right, here we go. And it, there was a ripple effect. It spilled over to my mom as well. They were like a couple of kids. Your cells are eavesdropping on you. What are you telling them? So, so focus on what you want, not on what you don't want. Your clients are going to want to focus on what they don't want. That's the work to shift them over Focus forward and don't get stuck in the past. Focus on what's working and do your best to stop complaining. Find something to appreciate. Your hair, your nails, your heart beating, the sunshine, even a Corvette. And then move forward. Compare and despair. You can't judge your journey against anyone else's. You don't know what they really ate, what they really thought, what's really going on in their life. You don't know. 
You can be inspired by others. You can learn some ideas of some things that you might want to try, but compare and despair. And all the power is in your now. Each one of us has the power right here, right now to feel just that little bit better. So ease into it. Be easy about it. Take those baby steps in the right direction is all that you require. I'll share that, why that's important in a moment. And appreciate your body. Allow that to grow. And focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. Can't exercise? Irrelevant. Irrelevant. Focus on what you can do. Listen to your body and let it teach you how to be good for you because we're all different. And start to tell a new story. Make that identity shift. So my now assistant, Karen, was an exhausted couch-bound mom, was not there for her husband or her kids. She couldn't get off the couch. She couldn't feel her hands or her feet. And yes, she lost 34 pounds, but she got her energy back and gradually got the sensation back and got her sleep and vitality back, was able to go with her kids to the field trips, was able to be that active mom, was able to take them skating. That's an identity shift. My amazing friend, Ingrid Jameau, IAN health coach, she was frumpy and 40, sorry, <laughs> hiding behind her children in pictures. Anyone do that? I do that. So I had a lot of kids. And <laughs> but as she lost her 40 pounds, she regained her energy. And she started to move her body. And she started to run, which was the most surprising to her because she could never figure out why people did that. And she went on to run in seven marathons in one year. She became an IIN health coach herself, as well as a personal trainer. She works out of a wellness center now, creating workshops for people, speaking to them, and she has a running group. That's an identity shift. The last one, yes. And she's my friend. And the last one is a former neighbor of mine, Louise, and she was another exhausted couch potato mom. And she had no energy. And yes, she lost 32 pounds, but as she got her energy back, she started to go to a spin class. And then she started to teach the spin class. She started to run. She started to go in triathlons. And this summer, she will be competing at the world level for Great Britain as a triathlete at the age of 52. That's an identity shift. How'd you like to be my neighbor? <laughs> so do you want to be right or do you want to be healthy? The right scan said my dad couldn't survive. You might be saying, I can never lose weight. All oh, my family is heavy. That's just the way I am. I always have digestive issues. Do you want to be right or do you want to be healthy? Is it time for a better story? So if we look at the core, some more core principles, when we know better, when we can do better, when we shift our identity, it becomes sustainable. We can help you lose 100 pounds. But if you still think you're obese, you're going to self-sabotage yourself so that you're back in alignment with how you see yourself. This is key to sustainability. When we shift our identity, we avoid self-sabotage. It's not about being perfect. And 100% of people who have successfully lost weight have gained in the process. It's normal. 
So my unique be good for you approach can be summed up with your job is to feel good. And that's how you transform from dis-ease to ease and to healthy weight loss. As a coach, your job is to help others uncover that for themselves. What is that? Shortcut, meditate. That's how you can really tune in and find out what is your body, your body asking for. What's your client's body asking for? And I learned that from Deepak Chopra. I learned how to meditate from him. And they say 21 days to create a habit. Well, it took five years for me to meditate 21 days in a row. <laughs> I now do it now, but it was there. So you may have clients who are the same way. So I'm going to share with you some specific factors affecting weight loss that you could implement right away. And some of these are from lessons learned along my journey. So almost 30 years ago now, uh, I'm going to call this the starving med student diet. And I was like a month away from becoming a young, full-fledged doctor. And I went to Hawaii for an elective. I'm from Canada, so, you know, smarter than I look. Um, <laughs> going to Hawaii in the winter. And I discovered that when you eat more earlier in the day, that was better. So I would attend all the rounds that had food. You know, you would have to do these lectures and they had food. So, and those were like breakfast or lunch. Then at dinner, at that age, I didn't know how to cook. Um, so I ate a lot of fruits and vegetables. It was a month before I realized the stove didn't work. And the weight just fell off. And I realized you can lose weight without exercising. All I was doing was walking. Walk to the beach, walk to the hospital, walk to the bus. That's it. Before that, when I was in Winnipeg and it was winter and it was cold and I would be going to the gym every night and busting it, nothing really changed. And then I go to Hawaii, didn't exercise at all, and it fell off. So I realized you can't outrun the fork. There's no amount of exercise that can compensate for an unclean diet. Don't exercise to punish yourself for something that you ate. Exercise because it feels good about your body. I never make people exercise at the beginning, just when you feel it. Then this happened. <laughs> I had four boys in five and three quarter years. And after each child, I'd lose all but five pounds, but times four kids, that's 20 pounds plus 10 from high school. That's how it happened. Everybody has a story. And I probably learned the most losing this 30 pounds because unlike when I was a teenager and struggled with my weight to keep a lid on things, this time I wasn't trying to get in a skinny pair of jeans. This time I just wanted energy to keep up with those kids. And now I was a full-fledged doctor and I saw the trajectory that my patients were on and I didn't want to have any of that sick path. So I knew I had to change things or I was going down the same road. So I treated my body like an experiment this time, not from blame or shame. And I was like, oh, you have a, it's a hot fudge sundae? I gained pounds. So I listened to my body. I focused on clean foods. I focused on superfoods with antioxidants that can help combat those free radicals and low glycemic foods that are not going to spike your sugar and protein pacing. Instead of having all of that protein at the end of the day and starving throughout the day, a little bit at every meal and snack, crowding out that you're all familiar with. And I realized it was a lot easier and faster than I could ever possibly have imagined. Then tragedy struck. We had three family deaths in a very short amount of time. And I'm going to cover those sleep, stress and water in a moment. But I realized the power of baby steps. Baby steps are so important. 
You ever get walloped with a catastrophe and you just can't do anything? You know you're supposed to do things, but you just can't. So remember that core principle, focus on what you can do? Because I couldn't, I just couldn't. I'm like, well, what could I do? Well, I could do one minute, one minute of exercise. I'll do one minute. And I knew already that meditation, exercise, and journaling were good for me, that that worked. So I did one minute of exercise, one minute of journaling, and one minute of meditation. And the next day, I did two. And the next day, I did three. And the next day, I did four. And I baby-stepped my way out. If you need to set the bar really low to get a little win, you do it. All you need to do is just point in the right direction. That's it. And baby step your way there. Aim for, they say seven, eight hours. Be good for you. We all have different amounts. But if you're chronically sleep deprived, that's associated with obesity and poor metabolism. And less than four hours of sleep, 73% more likely to be obese. Sleep deprivation increases your ghrelin, which turns on your switch for appetite, and it turns off your leptin, which turns off your off switch. But you are a hungry bear if you are sleep deprived. And it impairs your insulin sensitivity, so you can't tolerate those carbs. And it increases cortisol, which especially gives you that belly fat. And in addition, stress increases, weakens your immune system. It interferes with your sleep, so you have a vicious cycle going on. And it leads to fatty liver, which we saw before. Water, it's where I always start. It's so simple, anyone can do it. Flushes out toxins, it's a natural appetite suppressant, a simple anti-ager. And I had two women, both start about the same time. And one lost 13 pounds and one lost 49 pounds. The difference, water. One had two liters, which is pretty good. The other one had four to six liters. And if you look at these cover models, these fitness models, they're having upwards of four liters of water. It makes a huge difference. So if you have a client who's got a plateau or if they're stuck, just add water. Add water. It's so easy. And then finally, more recently, I learned about menopause and hormones and how having fat helps me lose fat and how these toxins love our fat and they get stored in our fat. So even when we're eating as clean as we can and we're exercising we still can't lose that fat but when we cleanse out the toxins it's like being shrink wrapped and that's the sculpting but i also learned the limitations of the scale there's only one pound difference between those two pictures and so focus on what's working when you build lean muscle and you lose toxic fat the scale might not be the right metric to to do that by and so focus on what's working right So previously, the scale was working for me. And so your clients might be getting great results, but they might not know it. So make sure you're focusing on all the things. What's their energy like? Their sleep like? How's their clothes fitting? And visualization. As I exercise those five minutes, uh, you know, a day, uh, actually it was 10 to 15 minutes. It was uh, most days, no gym, at home with some Pilates bands and some lights weights. That's it. But I'd prop up a little vision board of what I wanted. And I have many stories of how that's a powerful piece that people can add into. So we've covered many factors here that affect weight loss. And when you add water and get a new identity and you ease into it and you get that plant-based diet, protein pacing, low glycemic, superfoods, sleep, stress, toxins, when you get all of that, then the inflammation and the hormones tend to take care of itself. If you've got the superfoods, 
the inflammation comes in. If you're dealing with, you've got the stress handled and the sleep, your hormones are going to be a lot better. Okay, so just finally, this Dr. Mom's advice is really my mom's advice. Eat your veggies. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Drink plenty of fluids. Get lots of rest. Just because everyone else is doing it doesn't make it right. Think happy thoughts. Just do your best, and you are perfect the way you are. Be easy about it, and be good for you. I have been doing this for a long time. I've spoken to thousands of people. I've done thousands of interviews. I've written four books. I've been in private practice for over a decade. And I'm not saying any of that to pat myself on the back at all. I'm just telling you that, that I have spoken to so many people, but speaking to people like you, people that are on the forefront of changing and revolutionizing the way Americans eat is just you know, so much more, um, I'd say, emotional for me. I always get emotional when I'm talking to anybody about changing their health and their life, but speaking to all of you who I know are out there and who feel as passionately about health and wellness as I do is really an incredible honor. So um, I just, you know, I'm not going to talk to you today about vitamin C and, you know, micronutrients and phytonutrients and all that, because I know you all know a lot about that and that's not so much fun. What I do want to talk to you a little bit about today is really, you know, what I've just talked about the, you know, that I have been doing this for over a decade, and I'd love to share some of that experience with you. Because again, I would say that probably a lot of the things that you're educating people on are very similar to what I'm doing, but I've been doing it a long time. I've made definitely made a whole bunch of mistakes, but I also hopefully have done a lot of things right and helped a lot of people. And so again, helping you help people is really my greatest passion. So I just want to go back a little bit. Um, people always ask me, why did I get into nutrition? And why, why am I so passionate about this? We all have a story. Most of us in this field have a really specific story and reason why we got into it. And I always say, you know, when I was in seventh grade science class, my friend always reminds me of this story that I turned to her and said, I need some almonds. My body's craving vitamin E. And she looked at me like I was the biggest dork on the planet, which I kind of was. <laughs> but really, I had no clue what vitamin E was. I didn't know what I was talking about. But I obviously had read it somewhere in some magazine or something, and I had an interest in fueling the body properly. Fast forward to college, you know, years later, I played two sports. I had to fuel myself properly to have energy to play sports, yet I gained 25 pounds my freshman year, had a whole lot of emotional eating going on. I'm sure we have a lot of women out there. I'm sure a lot of you women and men can relate to that freshman year of college. And, you know, I had roommates that drank diet soda, didn't really eat so much, and fit into their skinny jeans at night. You know, smoked, did all other things that you just weren't, I didn't want to do, and also really weren't an option for me because I was an athlete. So I had this really big interest in how can I fuel myself for the athletic field, but also fit into my skinny jeans at night? Why am I the one that gained 25 pounds? And when, I, just by you know, trial and error and learning about some of the foods that fueled me properly, I realized, you know, when I tossed you know, toss the Swedish fish for salmon, I felt better. And I actually, not only did I perform better on the athletic field, but wow, like I studied better. I slept better. I didn't even realize at the time that that was really the very beginning of a nutritious life for me. So, uh, I want you all now to stand up. Okay. Are we all up? All right. If the answer is no, you should sit down. If it's yes, stay standing. Do you have breakfast every day? 
I knew it. I knew it. We're IIN. All right. Okay. Do you focus on putting the best foods in your body every day? Do you get seven hours sleep? Do you get eight glasses of water a day? I know there's, come on. I don't get seven hours sleep every day. <laughs> Do you have some form of stress management? Do you prioritize relationships as much as you do work? No lying. No lying. <laughs> do you maintain a clean and organized office and home? All right, we got something to work on. We can't, you can't all be perfect. <laughs> okay, good. And do you do something for yourself every day? Okay, good. We all don't do all of those things all of the time, right? But great job. I'm glad to see that we had a lot of people standing for a while. You can all sit down now. <laughs> and I am glad to see that we are all living, at least part of the time, most of the time, a nutritious life. So when I was asked to speak about sustainable weight loss, you know, I, I thought to myself, and you'll probably be surprised that I, I am a registered dietitian, and many people think registered dietitians just talk about food. Well, as you'll note, as you probably just noticed, of all those questions I just asked you, really only one related to food, right? That's because when I talk about sustainable weight loss and when I talk about health and wellness, I really only, oh, I only talk about food as one small component. And that's actually one of the things that I love about the school that you've all gone through is that I think that we're on the same page there. We all know that, that when food is only one one, one behavior, right? And also, you know, I always talk about, you know, there has to be less focus on change and more focus on behavior. So one of the first things when someone comes into my office, I never talk about change. That can be something that is very overwhelming for people. When someone comes in and you're talking to them, you know, you need to change this and we need to change this, we need to change this. It's very overwhelming. Even if we think these changes are small, diet soda to water, we might think they're small. They're huge to people. So even if you have a diet soda drinker and a Swedish fish eater, you, can, you still have to find the things in their life that they're doing well and then find the things in life that they need to, that they need to just modify, just improve upon behaviors. Okay, so if we're not talking so much about food, what are all of these other things that we are talking about? And this is where I talk about the different, the eight pillars of a nutritious life. So we have drink up, sleep deep, sweat often, stress less, live consciously, eat empowered, nurture yourself, and love more. So I had this client and you know, he was doing amazing job, eating really great whole foods, exercising four times a week consistently, even working on his sleep. You know, he had all of his snacks in the office, was doing so many things right. He was even meditating daily, a short meditation every day, does everything great. Travels about twice a month to the Midwest. Whenever he traveled for business, it was always a big steak dinner. He was in sales, always a big steak dinner. That big steak dinner, always turned into the, a, a poor sleep that night. Then the next day, diet soda. Does not drink diet soda in New York City. But the next day at the meetings, always diet soda. N the hotel he stays at has a gym, but uh, never went to the gym, tired, drank the soda, not motivated. So about twice a month we were going through this routine. So then I, I, so what I was telling him was I said, you know what, let's just change. Instead of even, forget about the ribeye dinner. Go for the ribeye. I'm not even going to change that right now. We're not, and again, we don't like to talk about change. We're not even going to, we're not even going to modify that dinner. That's not, we're just going, I'm just going to change the water, right? 
we're just going to take away that diet soda and do water for when, when he travels, okay? So the next trip, and he said, no pressure. You mean I can still have the fries and ribeye? So go for it. No pressure there. I just want you to do water because just because you're having the steak dinner doesn't mean you can't have the water, right? So has water, comes back, says to me, so I had water all day. And you know what? I ended up, I got wild salmon at the restaurant that night. They even had wild salmon and I got spinach. And you know what? I got in the gym the next day. I woke up a little bit early and I said, you know what? I can even do 15 minutes. I said, oh, go figure. And that's where, you know, it always, I, I talk about how these eight pillars of a nutritious life really go together. You don't need to be doing everything all the time and you don't need to be going down. So many people, especially, I mean, I think throughout the country, but I know, I mean, I work with a lot of New Yorkers are doing every, they're trying to do everything or they're just totally thrown off. They're trying to do everything or they're thrown off. You really have to think about doing as many of these pillars as possible so you're sort of living more like this as opposed to this up and down. And what I always like to tell people here is, you know, when this, when this occurred and he came back into the office and had this experience, what I explained to him is that, is that the connection between all these pillars, that there's a physiological connection and a behavioral connection. And at first, if I'd gotten into that with him before he even put this into practice, he probably would never have, it would have gone in one ear and out the other. But once somebody applies some of this, they can understand. For example, he thought, oh, diet soda, it's no calories, what's the difference, right? Now, all of you know this, obviously. We all know how horrible something like diet soda is for us, but to too many clients, they still think, oh, water is benign. It's not bad. You know, it's, it's, it's there. It's better than soda. But for this person, again, I connected the fact that water, not only does it help you maintain weight loss, but also obviously it's good for your skin. We know why it's so much better than diet soda, but also this is a time when you can actually connect again, the dots between physiological and behavioral changes that water for him, not only does when you're properly hydrated, keep you, your metabolism raised, but that also that water was enough to have him make a behavioral change behaviorally change what he did because he just felt better about himself. So then he ordered something healthy. So that water alone was enough to be a catalyst to then change what he ate at dinner, what he ate at dinner changed how he slept, and then he ended up exercising. That's an example of how something as simple as changing your beverages, just the fluid that you put into your body can be a catalyst for complete overall change. So you always have to, what I always tell people to tell people is remember physiological and behavioral changes. And sometimes, again, we know all the stats, we know all the research, it can get boring and it can get dry to just rattle off research, but there are times and places where you do want to mention the research. And this is sometimes a place, you know, tell somebody obese people who drank two cups of water before each meal over a three month period, lost five pounds. That can be very powerful to somebody. Again, we know this, you know this, but sometimes there is a time and a place for a stat. Sometimes there's a time and a place where someone just has to put something into action. And then you can take it up a notch. Then you can say, okay, so now we've got the diet soda out. We're drinking fluids. Now let's take it up a notch further. Let's add probiotics in from kombucha. Let's get antioxidants in from green tea. And all of a sudden, now you have somebody that has, is not stressed out about changing their diet and stressed out about exercising six times a week. They've just made some changes to the fluids that they put in their body and their whole life is naturally starting to change. So sleep deep is the next one. Okay. So people still 
undervalue the power of sleep. And I saw a lot of people starting to sit down at first when I asked about sleep. And I will tell you that sleep is one of my worst components of a nutritious life. It's tough for me. I've never been a great sleeper. I have too much frenetic energy, I think, that I'm still constantly working on to be able to be a good sleeper. But it is something I work really damn hard at. And I have everybody work hard at. But the problem is when people come into, probably when they come into your office, when you're working with them, people still undervalue it. People still think, oh yeah, yeah, whatever. I have to diet and exercise. But the fact is, if people are, if you're eating exact, if they're eating all the kale and all the blueberries that you tell them to eat, and they're stressed out and they're sleeping terribly, it's not going to make a difference. I'm not saying that's not better than eating junk, but it's not going to make nearly as much as a difference. So. How do you get people to actually value sleep? So that's the thing here. I mean, I know you know the benefits of sleep, but how do you get the people you're working with to value it? And one thing I always tell people is I say, okay, how do you feel after a really good night's sleep? Really try to tap into that feeling. And people are like, oh my God, I feel great. I feel like I can conquer the world, right? Everybody knows that good night's sleep feeling. Okay, so then what I always say, so imagine if you just feel like that, imagine what is actually going on inside of your body. And that's where you can then actually get into the physiology a little bit and explain. So when you don't sleep well, you know, and this is another place that sometimes a stat is powerful. When you sleep six hours versus the seven to eight hours, you're 23% more likely to be overweight. Now, clearly there's something going on. The hormones, I mean, it just makes sense to people. What's going on here is simple yet so profound. And that's exactly sometimes the things, you know, that I'm teaching people. It sounds very simple. Like, okay, you need your sleep. But it's very profound when you can get them to actually like really taste and feel how powerful it can be. So when you explain to them the ghrelin, the hunger hormone, it goes up. That's why you crave the bagel and cream cheese. That's why you want the, you know, the egg and cheese. You know, how many people, especially in days of college or your 20s when you're staying up late and you're drinking too much and you, the next day you want that bacon, egg and cheese because that's actually the foods that your body craves. So giving people a little bit of that physiology can actually hit home. But how do you get them to make that? How do you get them to actually incorporate into their diet? And this, this, it, do we have any moms out there? Moms out there? Okay. And you don't have to be a mom to understand this at all, but I just figured I'd ask. We all know babies have a sleep routine, right? Babies, and what do we do? Usually you bathe them, you moisturize them and massage them. You might give them a bottle or nurse them. You turn down the light, you might sing a song or have a candle lit. There's a specific routine, and that routine is key. And if you don't do that routine, I'm sure many moms out there can vouch, right, that what happens? What happens a couple hours later? You're woken up, right? You're woken up with a baby crying in the middle of the night. Well, that's what happens to us. We are on people on their iPhones and, you know, have the TV on. We're working, and then we just expect to shut down. It's not going to happen. So giving people a sleep routine, practicing good sleep hygiene is key. And when I explain to them, it's like they have to sleep like a baby. That's the goal. The goal is to sleep like a baby, just the way learning to listen to our bodies. We listened to our bodies when we were kids and ate when we were hungry. That's something we have to relearn as adults because most of us have had have changed that we haven't we haven't been doing that same thing we have to learn to sleep like a baby okay the next pillar exercise steady okay the reason I say steady is because consistency with exercise is most important absolutely most important and I know I used to be this person who would exercise because I happen to love exercise as bad as I am with sleep great with the exercise I love it 
But I used to be the type of person that would exercise. You know, I would love to if I could now, six or seven days a week. Loved it. And when I fell off and couldn't get it in, I wouldn't exercise for two weeks. I was totally up and down like that. And the same thing is that you know, with the emotional eating days of my early twenties, and you know, I had a client. Same thing. She two days a week with a trainer, a yoga day, a spin day. Excellent exercise routine. She came in, hadn't seen her in about a month. No exercise. She hadn't exercised in two weeks. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I missed my trainer. And so, you know, when I'm off, I'm off. I just, I'm going to get started again next week. We all know that that doesn't make any sense at all. But sometimes exercise is a key place to get people to understand how all of these pillars work together. Because again, many people really just think of the diet and the exercise and they're all or nothing. But when you, obviously most people have had the experience of exercising and then releasing those endorphins they know they know that feeling of feeling good and then what happens you eat better and then you eat better and then what happens you sleep better and exercise reduces stress when you're less stressed you also sleep better when you sleep better you know you crave healthier foods the next day there's all these different places depending upon the person you're working with whether you know they're having trouble with exercise whether they're having trouble with the foods they're eating whether they're having trouble you know drinking water there's all these different places in that person's life for you to be able to tap into how all of these factors, all of these components, all these pillars of a nutritious life work together physiologically and behaviorally. And it's up to you as people that are passionate about this, and I'm sure living and breathing a lot of this most of the time, it's up to you to tap into those places, the places that they're going to really be able to see and connect all of these things. And exercise for many people is really that place. The other thing with exercise, though, that I always tell people is that it's a really difficult dance. Many people exercise and then they get hungrier and they eat more, right? But then many people actually aren't exercising enough. And people always want to know, well, if I exercise this much, can I eat these many more calories? First of all, I don't ever, I don't talk about calories much at all in my practice. I'm not a calorie counter. I don't believe in that. It has to come down to the right foods and learning to listen to your body, which uh, is a much more difficult thing, but it's the same thing with, but it's a much more powerful thing. And it's when you can conquer that with exercise and diet together, it's incredibly powerful. But again, there's no magic formula there. And that's where, as healthcare practitioners, as health coaches, you need to really understand your clients. You have to understand how much they're exercising and what they're eating and help them through finding that nice balance. You have to lead that dance for them and help them through that because that's a very difficult challenge for people. And there is no magic formula. There's no X amount of calories, X amount of minutes exercising. It doesn't work that way. Okay, so stress less. Let me end where everybody has busy lives, right? Everybody's stressed. Power of managing stress, lowering cortisol levels, how that affects your weight, how that affects your health, how that affects how you sleep. I know you know all that, but the problem is that many people out there, I think I even have this stat down here, 90% of Americans believe that stress affects their health, right, and their weight, but only 30% of them think that it's affecting them, Right? which is what we know doesn't make any sense. But the reason for that really is because we walk around in a chronic state of stress. We're used to feeling this stress all the time. Even little things like hearing traffic or being stuck in traffic, like we're just used to operating at a different level where our bodies are not supposed to be operating. So what do you do? You know, because I know all of you, I can, because I know this, this happens to me. Someone walks in your office there, you know, 
busy, let's say, Wall Street person or busy, you know, a, a lawyer or so, in some form of very stressful type of a job, right? They come in and you've got your lavender candle and you've got, you know, your Buddha and they walk in and they honestly, what they want to do is take the Buddha and shove it up your tushy, right? Because they're like, you can't get me. You're all zen out talking about greens juices. And I am like in this stressful job. My boss just ripped me a new one. And, you know, I mean, that happens. So what do you do to that person? First of all, you have to you have to get on their page. Now, I don't mean that you should get all stressed out and throw away the Buddha. I love Buddha, but what I'm saying is, but you've got to you've got to meet them halfway. You have to be able to understand that most people most people in this country are not where you are. Hopefully, with all the work you're doing, we're going to get people there, right? But they're not there, so you have to meet them where they are. And one thing that I think is really powerful for people here, I always tell people to do an eight-count breath for eight minutes a day, just breathing in for a count of eight and breathing out for a count of eight. But still, how do you get someone to buy into that? And this one thing I think is is very powerful for people, what I always tell them is when you're doing that, when you're breathing properly like that, when you're relaxing, the relaxation response cannot exist with the stress response. And I don't care for the most stressed out, non-believer, non-spiritual person, person never wants to meditate. It still makes sense. When you're releasing the relaxation response, you cannot have the stress response. So even for those few minutes that someone does deep breathing properly, they are benefiting. They're lowering their stress. And you know what? Often they gain many more benefits too. It's not just the physiological response. It's then the behaviors. So again, that's a place where the physiological response and behaviors come together. Okay, so now... I mean, I am a nutritionist. we got to talk a little bit about food, right? So eating empowered. So just like you're not going to get a medal when for lack of sleep, because I think so many people think, I only slept four hours and I can still get through my spin class. That is just, there's nothing cool about that, right? There's nothing cool about that. And there's nothing cool about willpower. So when I, I, I everything I do in my practice is all, you know, sort of the opposite of willpower. It's not about, I'm not going to have the bread. I just think, first of all, it's such negative energy and it's just, I don't know, it's just, boring and it's negative who wants to live like that so I always talk about eating empowered and I know this I'm sure many of you have adopted this type of you know eating into your lives but again and it's so simple and it might sound really dorky to many of your clients when they first hear it I don't think it'll sound that way to you because I think you're on my page here but to many of your clients it might sound silly but you know it's always the I want the blueberries for dessert. It's not, I can't have the chocolate cake. And even if they, I always tell people, even if you have to say it to yourself a few times before you actually really feel this way, it's going to feel so darn good when you do it. And what happens is, what I always tell people too is, and it's not, I want the blueberries, I can't have the chocolate cake because I want to lose weight. It's, I want the blueberries because they're good for my skin. They're good for my heart health. And you know what? A byproduct of that is weight loss. Oh, and if I want to have that chocolate cake, I can have that chocolate cake. I always say, don't let the food control you. You want to control the food, right? So it's, I can have that chocolate cake if I want it. And usually you don't even end up wanting it. And if you do, you end up having it in a very conscious, controlled manner. But it's always the eating empowered. I want to put these good things in my body, flipping the switch there. And when you can eat empowered and when you can help a client get through that and make that switch in conjunction with learning to listen to your body, learning to eat when you're slightly hungry, stopping when you're slightly satisfied, those two things alone could it can be the catalyst for overall not only weight loss but weight maintenance and overall health for the rest of their life that is so incredibly key because even people that don't think of themselves as emotional eaters 
often don't eat from a place of empowerment. And that's incredibly key. I had a client recently, she came back and she said she had a cupcake and I gave her a high five. I was so happy because she had one cupcake and I was really happy because this is a person who always ate from a place of not being empowered. She was never empowered eating and she would eat really, really, really well and she'd make it through things like Mother's Day, eating the kale salad. You know, she had a healthy family, but the desserts would get her and it would be one cupcake and then three and then she'd be in a funk and come in or call me the next day. And she's like, I went and I had the attitude, I can totally rock you cupcake. And she did. And she had one and felt great. And that's actually healthier than feeling like you can never have the cupcake. And so when you get to that place of empowerment, that's going to be real overall success. Okay, so live consciously. Now, obviously, we don't want to live unconscious. Now, it seems kind of silly, right? But what I mean by living consciously is not just being conscious of the world at large around you, although that is incredibly important to be green and to have, you know, to live in a home that obviously doesn't have lots of chemicals and all of that and to be aware of your environment. That's obviously incredibly important. But what I mean here is, and this is why I asked you about your, how organized or clean you are. And I noticed a lot of you sat down there too. So I had a client once who... Um, she was I mean, so motivated, eating really well, doing so many things right. And I noticed, well, but why you keep saying you're buying the vegetables and I never see them as snacks at work. And I never really see them. You sort of with the dinner, like, where are these vegetables going? And she's like, I know, I just, I don't know. I keep forgetting to cut them up or so anyway, I, I met her at her home. This was about 10 years ago. I met her at her home and I will never forget this because I hadn't, this was, I was new to, you know, to, uh, counseling people. And I just hadn't thought about to ask the question about her refrigerator. So I go in and I'm looking and I open up the fridge. First of all, the light was broken, which doesn't make it look so pretty. Then I go in and I open up the drawers. There's like, I mean, there's old Chinese food from her husband and there's, there's all different, you know, junk in there, but also even the vegetables. Some of them are slimy and old <laughs> and rotten in the green bags. And some of them, even the fresh vegetables were still in the green bags, in the, fr in the fridge, not cut up. I'm like, this doesn't look pretty. I'm like, is this motivating you to eat healthy? She's like, I know that's why I'm never eating them. So something as simple as keeping a beautiful refrigerator glass jars get home get those vegetables cut them up make them look pretty something as simple as that you open up the door you're motivated to eat well right now I know a lot of you probably put these things into practice but knowing to ask your clients what does your refrigerator look like take a picture of it for me it's actually it makes a huge difference not only does that person feel better but then they're actually eating the vegetables they're doing well and that can be the one thing alone so that's why your space the world around it, your environment your refrigerator can make a huge impact on your overall health the same thing with their closet. Go ask a client, how do you organize your shoes? They're going to look at you like you're nuts, but you know what? You're going to get somewhere. You're going to get some information. This is why when someone wakes up in the morning and they go into their closet to get dressed and the clothes is everywhere, you know what's going to happen? A, they don't have as much time for breakfast. B, they're going to get stressed. They might even feel bad about themselves. Oh, these are old pants and they don't fit good. They're going to might feel bad about themselves. They're going to get stressed. They're running late. All of a sudden, their cortisol levels are up. We know what that does. Makes, it helps you gain weight in your midsection. Again, no time for breakfast. All of a sudden, they get to work. They're cranky. They may snap at someone they work with. Again, feel bad. They're, they're behind on their work, so they don't go to the gym at lunch. I mean, it can trigger a whole cascade of just unhealthy behaviors and physiological effects, right? So something as simple as having an organized closet can affect your health. And that's again why maintaining and maintaining healthy weight loss is not just about food. You have to know as P as health coaches, you have to know these questions to ask, to tap into these different places that might be affecting people in a negative way, but also might be the key to being the catalyst for their overall health and wellness. Okay. The next one, um, love more. 
Okay. So do you think that sex is good for your skin? All right. Love that. You know that. Excellent. Right? Because what happens when you have sex? What happens? Oxytocin, right? You release oxytocin. So this is another place, again, where this is such a key place to tie all of these pillars together. When you have sex, and again, it doesn't have to be sex, it's about having good relationships, and you release oxytocin. Oxytocin is an antioxidant, right? So that's why, again, I always say that's why your skin glows, right? Because it's an antioxidant. It's good for your skin. It's fighting those free radicals that are causing wrinkles. It's good for your heart health. But oxytocin is also an anti-obesity hormone. So again, you know, people have heard, I'm sure every one of the people you work with has heard that being in good relationships is healthy, but no one's really connecting the dots. Why is it healthy? Well, you know what? You release hormones that are good for you in the same way that eating blueberries are, right? Similar, right? And connecting those dots for people is incredibly important. Also, knowing where to tap into people and, and knowing what questions to ask as far as their relationships go is incredibly important. I had a client who kept having nighttime eating, nighttime eating, nighttime eating, and you know we changed everything, incorporating more protein and healthy fat into her day so she was more satisfied, so she wouldn't eat, have, the cra- have as much of the craving. We thought maybe it was hunger. Then we even had control foods, just some portion control of healthy whole foods, the small portions that she would have if she absolutely had to have something to eat at night. Still wasn't working. She was having more. One day she said something to me and I said, wait, what'd you say again? And she said, well, you know, and my husband. And I said, wait a minute. So does all this eating happen after he gets home from work at nine? She was like, yeah, generally. So we got into this whole conversation about a relationship. I'd been working with her for months. Had never come up. We'd never gotten there. But that was the key. Her relationship was causing this stress. Now, obviously, that turns into, that's a much bigger, that's a whole other issue and things, but knowing what might be the key is so important. And so being in healthy relationships, right, can not, are not only incredibly powerful and can be your biggest health asset, but also obviously not being in unhealthy relationships and recognizing how those are affecting your health. The other thing I just actually want to mention here, because I think this is something you're having to do with relationships, um, when, we, when we move in with somebody, so when you move in with a partner, or when you get married, or when you're planning on having children. Many people, you know, we talk about finances. We talk about how you want to educate your children. We talk about if you want to have children. You talk about religion often. People don't talk about, most people don't sit down and talk about what type of culture do we want to have in our home for food. And it often comes up later on. It comes up in stress between the, part, the couple or it comes up in stress when relating to children. So that's something I always talk to people about is talking of really figuring out the culture of the food, the culture of food that you want to have in your home before you join forces. Okay, next, nurture yourself. So I'm saving the best for last, right? We all know that we need to take time for ourselves. And really, taking time for yourself is really a combination of all of these things. For me, sometimes it's exercise. Sometimes it's the stress-less component. It's really pulling together all of these other factors. But the key is that if you don't take time for yourself, and we've all heard it before, you're not going to be able to take care of everyone else. And for all of you out there, we know that that's key because your jobs are taking care of other people. But for all of the people that you're working, 
working with, it's also it's also important because most people, especially all us women out there, we take care of everyone else first, and we're just not as powerful. And we want to be powerful. We want to take care of everyone really well, but that starts with ourselves. So you need to do something. I don't mean going on a girls' trip once a year. You need to do something daily, and it can be the same thing that you're doing for stress. It can even be meditation. I really want to tie this back to sustainable weight loss. Whether someone comes in to your office eating kale and quinoa or drinking diet soda and Swedish fish, whatever, whatever they, however they start, wherever they're coming from, they can all, you can always take their nutrition up a notch, but you always take their overall health up a notch and food is only one small component. So thank you so much. Pillars of Health with Carrie Glossman. Sustainable weight loss, how to lose weight and keep it off. Consistent small behavior modifications are not just about food and are key to long-term weight management. Food is only one behavior related to wellness. Less focus on change and more focus on behaviors. Support and accountability. Patience and consistency. At Nutritious Life, the foundation for attaining goal is through eight pillars. Eight pillars of Nutritious Life. Drink up, sleep deep, sweat often, less stress, live consciously, eat empowered, love more, nurture yourself. Drink up. Drinking water doesn't just help people to lose weight faster, but also keep it off longer. Our bodies are 50 to 75% water and these decrease as we age. Aside from helping us lose weight, water helps nutrition work. Two-thirds of the water in our bodies is intracellular, one-third is extracellular, which circulates between cells and inside organs, supplying nutrients and excreting waste. Research Obese people who drank two cups of water before each meal over three months period lost five pounds, more than those who didn't. One year later, the water drinkers had kept more of that weight off. Diet versus kombucha. Sleep deep. How much you sleep and the quality of your sleep will affect nearly every aspect of your daily life. So it's important to get the shut eye you need every night. Proper sleep is critical for stress management, weight, and overall health. Inadequate sleep leads to Decrease immunity, increase aging and risk of disease, overeating, overeating and poor food choices, disruptions in hormones, cortisol, ghrelin, and leptin. Research, 7 to 8 hours of sleep per night is recommended. The risk of developing obesity rises 23% with just 6 hours of sleep per night, 50% with 5 hours per night, and 73% with 4 hours per night. Give all clients a sleep hygiene routine, sleep like a baby. Exercise study. From a health standpoint, exercise can be more beneficial than simply being at a healthy weight. Aside from burning calories, exercise is more important because when you exercise your body releases endorphins which make you feel good and motivate you to eat well. Do your job well and simply be happy.
A growing body of evidence have shown that normal weight couch potatoes are more vulnerable to all causes of death, especially heart disease, than overweight people who exercise. Exercise for an exercise goal, not for a weight goal. Exercise and diet is difficult times. Stressless. Make time in your day to unwind and reset. Take 8 minutes to sit quietly and practice the 8 count breath. Stress increases the hormone cortisol, makes our bodies crave carbohydrates and increase appetite, makes our bodies store fat around my midsection. Even if you don't eat more due to stress, you can still gain weight due to stress. The APA reports 90% of Americans believe stress contribute to major illness such as heart disease, depressions, and obesity. But 31% of also says that the stress has only a slight or no impact on their own physical health. And 36% says it has a little impact on their mental health. Eight count breath, stress, and relaxation can't live together. Eat empowered. Feel empowered putting the most nutrient-rich food in your body. It's not, I can't eat the chocolate cake. It's, I can eat the blueberries. When you focus on how good you feel fueling yourself with the best foods, you will continue to motivate to eat these foods. The benefits from skin health to weight loss and all that's, that's in between will follow. Research and WCR or National Weight Control Registry tracks people who have lost at least 30 pounds or more have kept it off for 5 years or more. Most walk 60 minutes a day, eat breakfast, weigh themselves daily, maintain their diets regardless of what is going on in their lives, maintain food journals, point not all these are food behaviors. Live consciously. The environment that surrounds us can impact both our mental and physical health. Improve your work and home environment. A clean and organized workspace increases employee and productivity. Pretty fridge have a design designate design place for everything. Label items and folders. Use plants to help circulate air. Go green. Love more. The average person burns approximately 200 calories during 30 minutes of sex. Up to 30% of people who struggle with weight also report problems with sex drive, desire, or performance. Losing weight can help your sex life. Having selves can help you lose weight. Burns calorie oxytocin. Nurture yourself. Treating yourself to something special can have emotional and physical benefits. Time spent caring for yourself is valuable. Massage, bubble butt, manicure, shave, etc. It feels good to feel good. Identifying tools that will help clients feel good is important in understanding their goals and helping them reach success. Let's head into the basics of budgeting.
Budgeting is one of those topics that if you ask people to free associate with, they would likely say, ugh, that reminds me of being put in a straitjacket. You know, budgeting, that's all about deprivation. I don't like budgeting. So I have observed that many people have trouble with budgeting, and I think a lot of it is the term that is used. Um, and so I prefer to talk about it as healthy spending as opposed to budgeting. And I think another reason a lot of people have trouble with, with it, with budgeting or with healthy spending, is because, again, we're not taught what healthy spending looks like. Um, just like we in America had completely, as a nation, lost grasp of what a healthy food pyramid looks like, what healthy eating habits were. Many of us were never taught what healthy spending habits look like. So at the core, we start with our income, which is the circle... And um, if you are earning any money, um, and we live in this great country, you owe a piece of it right off the bat to Uncle Sam. A lot of people ask me, I'm just starting a business on the side. Uh, maybe I'm only partway through my, my training. I'm halfway through. I'm just starting to charge $25 or $50 an hour. Do I really have to pay taxes on that? Yes. So when you think about your income, there's a slice. That goes out to Uncle Sam. The key to being in a financially sound position is making sure that you maximize what's left after you pay taxes. And so this pyramid is what I have found to be the simplest and most powerful depiction um, of healthy spending. It boils down to 50, 30, 20. It comes from a book called All Your Worth um, that was written by Elizabeth Warren, um, that Elizabeth Warren of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and her daughter. Um, and I have tried to slice and dice the numbers and see if there was anything more effective, and I keep coming back to this simple, powerful formula. And what it says is, in an ideal world, balance ideal, in an ideal world, balance spending looks like this. About 50% of your take-home income goes towards things you need. That would be housing, transportation, food, child care, insurance, mandatory debt pay down. 30% of the money that you take home goes to wants. All the fun things that bring you joy. And in an ideal world, you'd be setting aside 20% for savings. And if you're looking at that and thinking, what is she smoking? Who can set aside 20% for savings? Don't beat yourself up. As a nation, our savings rate literally had gotten to zero um, in the height of the economic boom period. We're slowly starting to inch up. As a nation right now, we're saving 5 to 6% of our income. But really, um, to be completely financially buffed, never have to worry, 20% is the number that you're heading for. But even if you can just start with one or two or three, the key is to know this is where you're, this is where you're aiming. And when I talk to people about this and they're, they're looking at that 20% savings number, first of all, they're like, if I'm setting that aside, I want to know what I'm getting out of it, which is a fair question. So that savings is for three different buckets. One is near-term emergencies. One is intermediate-term goals, like a down payment on a home, a car, education, a wedding. And then the third component of that is your retirement. 
And roughly it breaks down to about 10, 12% of that savings goes towards your retirement and the remainder, that other 8 to 10% is for the emergency fund and nearer term needs. So that's what that savings is for. But then the bigger question becomes, how the heck am I supposed to get there? And when I talk to people individually, what I find is there are a couple of areas of spending where most of us received zero formal training. Um, And these items eat up the majority of our income, and we don't know what are reasonable amounts to pay. And those areas include our housing, our, our homes, our cars, our kids, and our educations. So I wanted to give you some rules of thumb that you can use. If you find that you're struggling and your pyramid doesn't look like this, you've got much more um, in, in, let's say, needs, which is the most common place. A, a, you know, if, if you read the popular media, a lot of times you'd think that we're all off buying shoes and makeup, and that's why we're living paycheck to paycheck. What I find with hardworking Americans, nine times out of ten, the problem area isn't wants, um, it's needs. It's having overspent um, in the core areas of life simply because nobody told you what was reasonable to spend there. So here are some rough rules of thumb, and again, they're rough. As with all rules of thumb, there can be individual situations that that um, make them different, but broadly speaking, you can comfortably afford a home that has a total price of three times your household income. So if your household income is $50,000 a year, you can comfortably afford a $150,000 home. And if you're on the East Coast, now you're really wondering what I'm smoking. Um, But I'll point out that, you know, I I live in the the southwest part of the country, and you can buy quite a nice place for $150,000. Now, you may not want to live in that part of the country, but there are all sorts of trade-offs. So if you choose to live on the East Coast or the West Coast or certain areas of the country where safe, affordable housing just can't be had for three times your household income, then some other area of the equation is going to have to be cut back on. And if you... What the rationale behind that three times number is this. When you back into everything, when you add in utilities and property tax and insurance and upkeep and all of that stuff, if you buy a home that's three times your income, your total housing costs will be roughly 30% of your take-home pay. And so if you buy a more expensive home, you can see if you've only got 50% for needs and more than 30% is going to your home, Well, that's one place where you can become out of alignment. Similarly, cars are another big issue. I've lived in Texas, and in Texas, um, I frequently meet people who say to me, Manisha, you know, I I make $40,000 a year. I'm single. I have no kids. There's no reason why I should be living paycheck to paycheck, but I am. And then I look at their car, and it's a BMW, and I'm thinking, you're driving it. Um, And the rough rule of thumb is... You can comfortably afford a car that is a third of your income. Um, so, you know, to keep the math really simple, um, if you're making $60,000 a year, you can afford to drive a $20,000 car comfortably. And if that doesn't sound like much car, now you can see how as a nation, just between those two things, homes and cars, we got ourselves into this crazy situation. Um, and it's and the rationale behind that is, again, when you back into all of the other costs, insurance, gas, parking, tolls, um, maintenance, um, a car that's about a third of your income will suck up about 
that, that whose purchase price is a third of your income will cost you about 10% of your income each year in car payments and everything else. So right there with those two simple rules, house, three times your annual income, car, one-third of your annual income, that's 40%. And we said, you've got 50% for your needs. And we've still got child care, insurance, uh, mandatory debt pay down, other things in those areas. You can see that if you get out of whack there, well, there's where your 20% that ideally would have been going to savings has headed to. And so if, if I'm giving you these numbers and you're thinking, oh, my God, I am totally off of these ratios, don't panic. Again, I want to just say that this is ideal. Like, um, Back when I was in double-digit clothes, it was ideal for me to try and get back into single-digit clothes. And at the time, that just seemed, when I was in my doctor's office, completely out of the realm. But I got there one step at a time. And so it's the same thing. Knowing, even if it's scary, knowing where you're heading can be incredibly powerful. Two other things I want to mention. One is not at all politically correct, but I'm, I'm just going to put it out there because I feel like we need to hear it, and that's kids. Kids are wonderful, and they're expensive. They're very expensive. Um, the Department of Agriculture, and I have no idea why it's the Department of Agriculture that calculates these statistics, but they estimate that a child born last year will cost mom and dad $180,000 to raise to age 18, and that doesn't include any education. $10,000 a year per child on average. Um, and that doesn't include, um, you know, private schools and extra lessons and a lot of other things that, that, um, that, that have become in many families um, important considerations. And so I say that not to say don't have kids, but if you're struggling um, and you have kids, I put that out there because I feel like it's something that we're, we're, we just don't talk about a lot. And what it might mean is you have to have a smaller house or maybe your kids don't all get their own bedroom. Um, and you know, I have a dear friend from college who says, Manish, I, I've read all your books. You know, I, I watch your stuff on YouTube. I subscribe to your blog, but it's not working. And I say, honey... You've got six kids um, and, and one salary. Her husband's in the Air Force. And so, you know, I say the trade-off is, you guys, you know, you, you can't live in a five-bedroom home when you've got this situation. Um, and so as she realized, okay, trade-off, it's been amazing. They're not anywhere close to 20%, but they're close to 7 8% saving, which is a dramatic difference from where they were before. So I, I just want to put that out. And, again, I say it. Um, you know, coming from an Indian culture where family is everything, it's awkward for me to put put a number on life. But I want to I want to put that out there because there's so many parents that are struggling, and I just want you to understand that's why. And so this exercise can help you see where you might want to make other trade offs. The last one is education which is something else that is hard for me to talk about because, again, I didn't come from a fancy schmancy background and I got to go to really incredible schools. And I am probably, you know, I was born in 1970. I'm probably one of the last generations that was able to get out of incredible private schools with, with debt burdens that were actually manageable. I meet so many smart, smart, hardworking people today who are literally drowning under six figures of student loan debt. 
And so I am a huge fan of online education. I'm a huge fan of community colleges. I'm a huge fan of creative solutions, starting at state schools, transferring. But I just want to put out there that, you know, for years the thought was, Educational debt is good debt. There's no amount of money that you can spend on your education that's not worth it. And I am starting to question whether the tassel is worth the hassle. And so the rough rule of thumb um, that, that I've found that is useful in thinking about how much for your kids, for instance, if they're wanting to go off to school to help you give a, a, yourself a metric of what's reasonable or if you want to go back to school, is this. In an ideal world, you would not take on more in student loan debts than you think you will make, on average, over your first 10 years out of school. Now, that was a mouthful, so let me put it in plain English. You're going to school, you're choosing a career that you think will make $50,000 a year, I, on average, over your first 10 years. Ideally, you would not want to take on more than $50,000 of student loan debt. And the math behind that is, um, if you wanted to be really aggressive, you could set aside 10% of your income a year and with interest in 12 to 15 years have that debt paid off so that you can have extra money for other things in life. If you take on significantly more in student loan debt and your income is not expected to accelerate dramatically, um, over your your career, um, what you'll end up with is essentially carrying around a mortgage while you're then trying to have a mortgage and raise kids and have a car and build a career. And that's how so many people got trapped where they are today. So at risk of sounding like a bit of a Debbie Downer, I wanted to put those numbers out there because it just like, again, hearing that I was gaining weight at a rate of five pounds per year of marriage was not a particularly heartwarming sentiment, but it stuck in my head. And if you can remember 50, 30, 20, if you can remember what's a rough rule of thumb for your home, for your car, um, know that kids on average will cost you 10000 a year a pop, um, and know that with student loan debt, you really want to think long and hard and make sure you're getting a good return on um, your investment. And again, which is why something like online education just makes so much sense. Um, those are some things that can help keep you on track. The last thing I want to say about budgeting is people will often say, I really don't know what I'm spending. And, you know, the thought of pulling out last year's receipts makes me just want to hurl. And so I just want to tell you, it does not have to be a complicated process. I want to show you literally my budgeting system. I've been doing this since 1991. I can tell you within about $5 of accuracy exactly how much I've spent every year since 1991. It's very high tech. This is my wallet. In the back is a pocket with a slip of paper. And every time I buy anything. I'm at the grocery store. I'm um, at the drugstore. I'm in line getting a coffee. I'm paying a bill. I simply write down what I bought. So um, I just spent $5 at a coffee house. I spent $140 on our groceries for the week. And I spent $32 on gas. Those are the last three things that I purchased. And at the end of the month, I literally sit down. It takes me 15 minutes. And I tally up everything. And I can compare it to my pyramid. Um, I'm a little anal, so I, I like to 
categorize and put it in a spreadsheet. You can choose to use Quicken or Mint or some of these more sophisticated online solutions, but getting started does not have to be any more complicated than the same methodology you would use when you're keeping a, a, a nutritional diary. Just write it down and compare it to the pyramid and see where you might want to make some adjustments. The Basics of Budgeting by Manisha Takar, founder of Women's Financial Literacy Initiative. The Basic of Budgeting. Where oh, where does it all go? 20% savings, 30% wants, 50% needs. Why should we save? 1. Near-term emergencies. 2. Intermediate-term goals, a down payment on a home or a car, education, a wedding. 3. Retirement Rules of thumb for how to get there You can comfortably afford a home that has a total price of 3 times your total income. You can comfortably afford a car that is a third of your income. Account for kids being expensive. See where you can make trades off. Ideally, do not take on more in student loan debts than you can make on average for your first 10 years out of school. Keep track of what you spend. I will talk a little bit about the unique relationship that we women have with money. Um, there's some great news on the horizon when it comes to women and careers and finances. Last year in the summer, for the first time ever, there were more women in the paid workforce than men ever in the history, um, which is really neat when you think about it. Um, and we have more female breadwinners and co-breadwinners at any other point in time. I call it Rosie the Riveter Part 2. Um, there's a big resurgence um, in the contributions that women are making to household um, incomes and budgets. 40% of small businesses are run by us women, and our small businesses are growing at twice the rate of GDP. Um, and my favorite factoid of all is that if you looked at all women globally, the expected increase in our collective incomes over the next five years is $5 trillion with a T. And that's such a big number, it's hard to put it in perspective. So let me say that is larger. The amount of money that all of us women globally working are expected to see our incomes increase over the next five years is larger than the expected GDP increase of India and China combined. So really, you want to think about what's the big, huge emerging market out there? It's us. It's women. Um, so there, there are wonderful things going on um, for working women. But we still have some headwinds. And the three biggest ones are that we live longer. And that's a good one. So we don't want to do anything about that. Um, we live five to seven years longer than men. The second is that we still earn less. We still earn 77 cents on the male dollar. That number has been stubbornly um, slow to move. And the third headwind is that we, on average, spend 11 more years than men out of the paid workforce caring for our kids um, and elderly parents. And it's those last two headwinds that I want to give you a couple of stats. 
um, to tuck away and marinate on and, and see if they will um, influence you as you go along and finding the right path and career that makes your heart sing, um, make the decisions that, that fit best for you and your family. So on the 77 cents to the dollar, um, economists have done all kinds of studies trying to figure out what the heck is going on here. Um, and I actually have to say my inner feminist laughs a little bit at this because they, uh, they and I mean this with, with all due respect to the wonderful men and the, the audience, um, they call it the he session. And the reason, honestly, is what I call the cheaper to keeper uh, effect. It's kind of capitalism 101. Um, because so many women were earning less than men for the same work, when it came time for headcount reductions, guess who got to stay? Um, so that's one piece of it, which is in a way a good thing because I think it takes an issue that was once viewed as a, a woman's issue, pay inequality, and now it makes it a family issue because with so many of us now, primary or co-breadwinners, it affects our husbands, our children, our parents, our grandparents, our grandchildren. Um, so it becomes a universal issue. Another reason that women earn less is historically we have tended to choose occupations that are more caring, more giving, um, and oftentimes in those occupations the pay scale is less. And the third, and this is the one that I find most fascinating, it's the hardest for me personally to deal with, but it's where I see the most opportunity for all of us in the room, is that oftentimes it's that we don't ask for it. So there is a professor at Carnegie Mellon. Her name's Linda Babcock. She's written a wonderful book called um, Ask For It, and it studies um, the different patterns between men and women in salary negotiation. And lo and behold, it turns out that men are four times more likely to negotiate their first salary um, out of school. And amazingly, the studies have shown that over a lifetime, you know, assuming 25, age 25 to 65, a, life, a working span of that time length, simply not negotiating your first salary will, will cause you to leave $500,000 of lifetime earnings on the table. And women who can, and there aren't very many who have done this, but women who have consistently negotiated their salaries throughout their entire work careers, assuming a 40-year work um, span, earn an average of a million dollars more in lifetime earnings than women who don't. Um, and I have to tell you that I've never once asked for a raise. My entire time in corporate America, I kept thinking, well, I'm just going to work harder. I'm going to do a better job. They're going to see the results, and it will come through. And when I look at this data, I, I happen to work in an industry that had a very nice pay structure, and I have nothing to complain about. But when I stop and I think about why I didn't speak up, when I'm really honest, I just wanted to be liked. I didn't want people to think I was mean. I didn't want people to use the B word when they thought about me. And as I step back and I think of how hard I worked to get my education and my skills and how much I care about my work, what an odd set of thoughts to run through our heads. But the studies show, interestingly, that men can negotiate for salary raises in any style. They're not penalized. But for us women, if we're perceived as being aggressive, um, and uh, take no prisoners in our negotiation approach were actually penalized. 
So it's a little bit of a conundrum in the sense that we need to speak up and do it. But one thing I think all of us women can do is help encourage each other because I know for me, um, now that I've become more aware of this, as I'm negotiating rates for various different events, um, all kinds of voices come out of my mouth. Some of them are really strong and serious and some of them are really tight and tiny and weak and I'm nervous. And it's, I mean, it's just all over the map. And so I think to the extent that we can support and encourage each other as we speak up, because some of those initial negotiating voices may be harsher than the ones we're used to hearing from our, our, our sisters and supporting each other in that I think is a very important step forward. Um, the last thing I want to say on spending time out of the workforce is just the enormous impact a few years of savings um, set aside can have on your future. So right now, women on average start saving for retirement two years later than men. Um, men on average start saving for the retirement at age 28. Women start saving at age 30. may not sound like a big deal, but if you take that out over the course of a career, assuming the woman never takes any time off to raise children um, or care for elderly parents, she'll have 15% less money, a 15% reduced standard of living in retirement as a result of starting simply two years later. And if you have a longer gap, let's say you start later and then you take time off, it is mind-boggling. So I'm going to give you one last example. Let's take... Joe and Jane. Both Joe and Jane save $5,000 a year for their retirement every year. Both Joe and Jane invest in a basket of low-cost index funds, nicely diversified across stocks and bonds, and see average annual returns of 7%. Fast forward to age 65, and you might think Joe and Jane have pretty similar lives, but they don't. Joe has a million dollars in his retirement nest egg. Jane has $200,000. Joe has five times more money than Jane. You may ask, how did that happen? They both save $5,000 a year, they both earn 7%. The answer is time. In this example, Joe started saving at age 25 and did so consistently through to age 65. Jane, like so many hardworking women, didn't stop to think about her own retirement until her mid-40s. And if she wanted to end up at the same place as Joe, starting at age 45, and she wanted a million-dollar nest egg at 65, instead of $5,000 a year, she'd have to save $25,000 a year. So this, the difference that time makes, every little bit, the money you save early on, it's the most important and the most valuable money you can save. And this is where that first stat that I said we don't want to change, that we live longer, comes into play. So if you're in your mid-40s, your mid-50s, your mid-60s, and you haven't started, the good news is that we're living so much longer, and especially because you all are so fit and eat healthy, um, you have many years ahead of you to save for your retirement. But the key is even if it's just a small amount, no amount is too small to start setting aside for your future. So those are a few things that I wanted to say about, um, well, so there's one more thing I wanted to, to, one more comment I wanted to make about the unique relationship that women have with, with money. Um, I read an op-ed in the USA Today, um, it was called The Princess Problem, 
And I thought it was going to be, and I saw a Disney Barbie doll in there, and I thought, oh, this is going to explain why I've been gaining weight. I'm, I'm terrorized by all these skinny Barbies out there. Um, and I start reading the op-ed, and it turns out to have a very, very different um, message and one that um, I'd like to share with you because it really struck me. It was written by a woman, a mom, Laura Vanderkam, and she said, Some moms worry that princesses make girls obsessed with beauty. But I think the problem is that the popular princess lacks what psychologists call an internal locus of control. This is the belief that you are responsible for making your way in the world. In one study of negotiations, 85% of men had an internal locus of control. They determined their worth, and they said it was their responsibility to ensure the companies paid up. Only 17% of us women felt that way. More than 80% of women felt that their worth was determined by what their companies chose to pay them, just as Cinderella is chosen by her prince. So I want to put that out there. If you feel that you're struggling with money, again, I just want you to know you are not alone. And we're at this amazing point in this scary economy where we've got a reset button that everyone is hitting. And these are some of the things that we, as working women and men who care about working women, can change. Women and Money with Manisha Takar women's unique relationship with money women have heavier financial headwinds than men things to consider oftentimes women do not ask for raises supporting each other is an important step forward every bit you can save early on is important no amount is too small to start setting aside for your future if you are struggling with money you are not alone the basics of healthy spending the 50 30 20 rule just as would you like to refer dieting as healthy eating manisha takar an nba cfa refers to budgeting as healthy spending the key to being financially healthy is to make sure you are spending and saving your income wisely manisha created a simple spending ratio to help stay on track she recommends using the 50 30 20 rules Healthy Spending Pyramid 20% should go toward your savings, 30% should go toward your activities and purchases you want, restaurant, concert, travels, and shoppings. 50% of your take-home income after taxes should go toward the things you need to pay for, houses, transportation, food, and bills. The Golden Pot Step 5 Evaluate your personal finances. Set yourself up for success by taking control of your finances. Finances can be a source of freedom or limitation depending on how you manage your money. No matter how much money you make, it can be stressful if you don't keep track of your income and spending. By developing financial goals and staying on top of your spending, you can eliminate debt and start saving for short and long-term needs getting your finances in order may seem overwhelming at first but taking a few hours to create a system to track your spending and establish a budget 
is the key to setting yourself up for financial success. Assignment, track your current, current income spending. Before you can set financial goals, it's helpful to know what's coming in and what's going out right now. This allows you to see where your money is going and if there are areas that need to be addressed. Remember, Manisha Takor suggests ratio for spending 50% for the needs, 30% for wants, and 20% for savings. Action steps 1. Keep track of your income expenses for one month. You can do this using pen and paper or electronic spreadsheets. If you already use budgeting software, use it here. However, the goal is to simply keep track of your finances. Don't get distracted with elaborate ops and system. Once you have gathered this information, you'll have the numbers to plug into your, into your budget. Two, determine where you are now versus where you want to be. Once you've tracked your expenses, look at your spending ratios. Take time with your journal and consider the following. Are you close to the rule 50-30-20? Are you surprised by how much or how little you are spending in, a, in any area? Are these areas where you could rein in or should be spending more? What motivates you to spend or save money? Bonus action step. Now that you know how to spending breakdown compares to the 50-30-20 rule, consider the areas of your spending that you would like to bring into greater balance. Perhaps you would like more control over your dining out budget or money you spend on clothing. Using Manisha Takor's 50-30-20 rule, write down the amount of money you have available right now to spend in these categories and commit it only spending that amount each month. To make your commit commitment easier, consider transferring the allotted amount into a separate bank account at the start of each month. If you're old-fashioned, you can set aside an envelope or two Hold the specific amount of, of spending money for the categories you've chosen. Label the envelopes with clothing money, eating out money, or whatever else you wish to bring into greater balance and fill them with the appropriate amount on cash of cash. Before shopping or going out to eat, reach into your envelope or check your balance account to see what you have available. Assignment Create a budget and establish short-term and long-term goals. Now that you have an accurate sense of where your money has been going, it's time to take charge of where you want it to go moving forward. Obviously, some expenditure are more finite than others, but keep in mind that fixed bills may be more flexible than you think. For example, a mortgage or rent payment is absolutely only if you want to stay in your home. You can plan to relocate refinances or become a freelance nomad. Options become available with planning and a commitment to responsible spending. Action step 1. In order to achieve financial freedom, it is 
important to create a realistic budget. Many tools are available, including free online resources. A simple way to keep a budget is with an electronic spreadsheet. You can find free templates from Microsoft Excel and Google. Also, many banks offer online tools and some even connect to your bank accounts. Two, there are also websites and apps available. If you search online, you can find articles that offers a comparison of features and costs. Depending on your goals and the complexity of your budget, you can find one that meets your needs. Some sites to consider are Mint.com, Leave Money, and Pearl Budget. Assignment, plan for the future now that you have a hand, handle on where your money is going you get to do the fun part make plans for how you want to use your money in the future setting short and long-term goals helps motivate you to stay on track with your saving plans action step go back to your journal and think about your values where do you want your you hard your hard and earned dollars to go you are budgeting for your family or business be sure to incorporate them in the in the conversation it's important for everyone to agree to the goal so that can be held accountable to sticking to the plan the mind mopping tool you learn in the golden path step one is perfect for this step two feeding off your general goals and values where specifically we who would you like to put to start putting your money here are some ideas to spark your creativity as if any of us needs more ideas for spending money plan an eco vacation map out a kitchen remodel start a saving account for your kids education open a retirement ac account invest in a startup that resonates with you donate to charity Nice to see you again. Welcome to your student success check-in. As a refresher, these brief check-ins help you assess where you've been, where you are now, and where you're going next in the course. We'll highlight upcoming content and course components, answer questions you might have, assess what kind of support you might be needing, and remind you where you can find that support. So, how's everything going? How are you feeling about the first part of the health coach training program? Hopefully, you're figuring things out. How to navigate the Learning Center, how to carve out time for the course, and how to connect with your IIN community. Okay, let's highlight what's coming up. Test one. Your first test is coming up soon. Remember that you have to pass two of four tests to graduate. Here's what else you need to know. The first test covers the content in modules one through 10. You'll get an email Monday morning as you do for each module, letting you know that it's open. You can also find the opening and closing dates in the course schedule, which can be found in the documents page of the Learning Center. You must complete the test within two hours of starting it, and you have to pass two of four tests with a score of at least 70%. A study guide is released at module 10 in the Learning Center. Okay, let's continue. What else is coming up? Health histories. Your health history resources open at module 10. These are in the business toolkit in the Learning Center. 
you'll see health history forms in English and Spanish, as well as other tools to help you in this area of coaching. You can download them individually or as a zip file. Here's what you need to know about health histories at this point. You have to submit six health histories to graduate, though we encourage you to do as many as you can. Download the health history forms in the business toolkit and conduct health histories either in person or virtually. Submit them on the health histories timeline page of the Learning Center beginning at module 10. You don't have to submit the entire health history online. You just need to answer a handful of broad questions that show us that you completed it. Once a health history has been submitted, the next health history box will unlock. It can take up to four days for submissions to be approved, but don't worry, it will happen. Once a health history is approved, you'll see past in green letters on that health history box. You don't have to wait for the previous one to be approved before submitting more. Now, we know you might have questions about health histories. What are they exactly and why are they so important? We'll dive more into this very soon, but for now, let me offer this tip for this check-in. Start doing health histories as soon as possible. As our founder, Joshua Rosenthal says, if you do two health histories each week, you'll always have clients. It's perfectly normal to feel unsure about how to do them, but here's the thing, there's no right or wrong way. You can ask questions on the form and also let the client lead a little. See where the conversation goes. It's okay if you don't get through every single question. You can always follow up later. Plus, some of the questions might not be relevant for everyone. The bottom line is, these health histories are just practice. The point is to get comfortable with simply sitting with someone and asking questions. You don't need to know any particular coaching skills before doing a health history. Just try them. The more health histories you do, the more confident you'll feel. Hopefully that clears up a few things. Again, you'll receive more info on these soon. To recap, your first test is coming up soon. Your health history resources open at module 10. Start practicing health histories. Before we wrap up, take a minute to think about what kind of support you're needing right now and where you might find it. Pause the video now to reflect on that. Remember, you can always refer to the Help Center, which you can access by clicking on the red question mark icon in the Learning Center if using a computer. You can also reach out to Student Success by calling or emailing us. Finally, you can refer to the support resources and accountability handouts in the syllabus for more information. Trust the process and best of luck as you continue through the Health Coach Training Program. Until next time.